Hello and welcome to Life Sentences. I'm Caroline Baum. British biographer Andrew Lowney is in the middle of a crusade that has already cost him £250,000 of his own life savings in his campaign to have Lord Mountbatten's diaries covering Indian partition made public. His efforts bear a striking similarity to Jenny Hocking's here when it came to the palace's involvement in the dismissal of Gough Whitlam in 1975. In his book, The Mountbattens, he writes about the dynamics of Lord Louis's open marriage to his very wealthy wife, Edwina, and in a final chapter, he sheds light on Mountbatten's secret homosexual life in the Navy and at his castle in Ireland, where young boys were procured for him from King Cora, a notorious boy's home near Belfast. His latest book, Traitor King, looks at the activities of the Duke and Duchess of Windsor following the abdication in 1936, when Edward goes to the Bahamas as governor and, encouraged by Wallace's previous connections to the Nazis, the couple plot how they might reclaim the British throne once the Germans win the war. It's a pretty staggering scenario in which Lowney says that the Germans approached the Duke to be a British Marshal Pétain, the French hero of World War I, who became the leader of the Nazis' Vichy regime during the occupation. Andrew, welcome to Life Sentences. Nice to be with you. I want to ask you about your journey as a biographer because you began with the Cold War spy Guy Burgess. Now, that's not exactly an easy subject to start with. He's already been much written about. So what was different about your approach? Well, in fact, I started 25 years ago with a literary biography of the writer John Buchan, author of The 39 Steps. But I've been working on Guy Burgess at the same time. And uh, I'd written a book or helped someone write a book on Anthony Blunt in the 1980s. So that's why I carried on. And the problem, of course, was getting access to material because the problem with intelligence books is the people you talk to don't necessarily want to talk or will tell you the truth. And a lot of the stuff isn't written down. But eventually I did find a lot of people who had known him. I was able to, to fill out that part and papers were released. So I was able to do both parts of the story. But in some ways, I like these books about people with double lives, hidden lives. And that sort of continued both with the Windsors and with the Mountbatten's. So in the case of Guy Burgess, what was your new fresh take on him, if you like? Well, you say a lot have been written about him, which is absolutely right. But there'd never been a biography of him. Uh, He'd been a bit player in other people's books. And what I found was that he wasn't the bit player. He was actually a major player in the whole thing, taken very seriously by the Russians, the person who kept the whole story, the whole show on the road, uh, and that he was far more effective than perhaps his rather um, jokey exterior would, would suggest. Now, you said that you quite liked writing about people with double lives. Um, I've read somewhere that you see yourself as writing revisionist biographies. What do you mean by that? Well, I think there's no point in writing a biography which is the same as all the previous biographies. So you've got to have another angle, you've got to have new material. And I just think that a lot of books are written, perhaps, for example, with royal biographies, good example, are written with uh, rather hagiographic, they're written with cooperation from courtiers. There's no attempt to, to actually look at the real archives if they exist, uh, certainly, for example, with the Windsors. 
it seemed to me that there had been lots of books clearly about them, all focused on the abdication. No one had looked really at the period afterwards, which was another 36 years of marriage. But also that we'd had these hints that they'd been sympathetic to the Nazis, and the inference had been that they'd been innocent dupes rather than active intriguers. And it seemed to me all the evidence pointed to them being actually working very closely with the Germans. Uh, and that's a conclusion I, I drew when I began to research the book you know, properly in the archives. This is Traitor King, which we're going to come to in a moment. Before we do that, though, you've got another hat that you wear as a literary agent. And I was just wondering whether the renewed interest in figures like Mountbatten and, and the Windsors, to some extent, came about because of the television drama series The Crown and whether you as an agent thought the time is ripe. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I'm always encouraging my authors to, to write books which, because they take time, they are expensive, to write books which have an international appeal, which may have serial rights, extract rights in newspapers. Uh, and um, raw biography, which is sort of what I've ended up doing, fits the bill perfectly. And you're absolutely right. The Crown has made them an international phenomenon. And because the crown isn't always accurate, there's, there's, there's a scope for the historian to step in there and to perhaps fill the gaps. And there's also great drama. I mean, these are extraordinary stories and um, at the centre of power, really. So that it does make it very attractive. I mean, if intelligence is difficult to research, royal families are even more difficult uh, because <laughs> there's an amata that no one speaks if they're in the circle. But the great thing is in the States, they do um, have archives that you can access. Here, one of the problems is that anything connected with the royal family is subject to exemptions under the Freedom of Information Act. And the Royal Archives, which clearly has the, the, the best collection of material, is um, supposedly a private archive. And therefore, they only show you what they want to show you. I, I equate it to going to a restaurant without a menu. You basically give them what you're given and in some cases in a restaurant, that can turn out to be fabulous, whereas in this case, perhaps not. I wanted to ask you, you said there that biographies take a long time and that they're expensive to write. Basically, they're expensive to research because you have to fund yourself to travel. So can you give me an idea of what, what the costs associated with one of your biographies would be, even without going to court? Right. Well, it, it, it varies. But clearly, for example, with the Mountbatten's, I had to travel to the States uh, to sit in archives. I mean, I don't perhaps spend as long in archives as, as, for example, academics who are given grants and can take a month to do so. I have to be in and out probably within days or, or a week. But uh, I do spend a lot of time in archives all around the world. So there were trips to the Bahamas, to the States, uh, where I clearly have to uh, live at the same time. Uh, there's uh, the cost of copying material. Uh, sometimes that can run into hundreds of pounds from some archives, which I can't reach. There are uh, just the travel costs in Britain, going to interview people, uh, buying books, going, for example, even just short trips to the, to the National Archives here in Britain. I mean, that's, that's you know, £10 a day, uh, just, just travelling there. And I will look at perhaps, well, I think my, my list of files at the National Archives was over 100 pages long. Uh, and that, I'm probably only looking at 10 files per day. So there were probably about 50 per page. So you can get a sense of how many trips that is just to the National Archives here. 
So it, it, it is, a, it is a, a long process. Sometimes you have to entertain people. Uh, the spies were very good at, at basically getting me to go take them to expensive restaurants and tell me nothing. So uh, it's, it, it is it is time-consuming and, and costly. And, of course, all, while I'm doing this, I'm not working. Um, so that's another factor. And the picture costs, for example... Um, Sometimes you may even buy archive material if stuff comes up at auction. For example, collections of letters, uh, autograph collections are quite useful. They will often reveal something. So it does all mount up. It does. It, it's much more costly, I think, than people realise. And also advances, in many cases, I understand, have actually gone down. Now, the crown may have given you a bit of a bump and a boost as far as advances are concerned, but that hasn't been the case for biography recently. Um, let's just start with Mountbatten, because chronologically that book comes before Traitor King. In a sense, <laughs> I love the fact that you preface the book with a quote from Mountbatten, in which he says, no biography has any value unless it's written with warts and all. Well, my goodness, you have given us the warts. You have painted a fascinating portrait of uh, Lord Louis and his wife Edwina as a couple of rich, very ambitious people. And in the case of the Mountbattens, you have a highly sexed woman, Edwina, who has countless affairs in an open marriage, which Mountbatten seems to have acquiesced to um, and loved her in a somewhat more maybe romantic, idealised, detached way until they found their joint purpose in India. Would, would you say that's about a summation of their relationship? Yes, it is. I mean, I think they were deeply in love, but he was busy with his career. He was often away uh, on ship or in Malta. She didn't want to. She was a rather spoilt woman. She didn't feel like going to Malta. She wanted to party and go shopping. So I think what happened was she was given purpose really during the war, before they got to India, when suddenly this highly intelligent woman was given some purpose in life. She learnt also from her husband, who was a man who was incredibly well organized and knew how to network. And so they it's a game really, it's a book of two halves. First half where you feel sorry for Lord Louis because of her affairs and she treats him appallingly. And then the second half where she's a sort of saint with her humanitarian work and he becomes slightly pompous and vain as he becomes better known. And then through it is is this portrait of this unusual marriage, as you say. She had something like 17 lovers. I mean, he took lovers as well. Eventually, he decided that he would get into the, he would join this, he would follow her. But uh, it is this extraordinary marriage because even though they were unfaithful to each other, they clearly loved each other. And it's uh, one of the interesting things having access to the diaries and letters uh, that I've now managed to get with the Mountbatten's um, is to show that love. I mean, that even when she's having affairs and she's actually in Spain with her lover, she writes these affectionate letters to her husband saying, can't wait to see you. It's it's bizarre. But, yeah, it, it's a portrait of a highly intelligent woman who really had no purpose at the time until until the war came along. Absolutely. And I can't help but thinking, Andrew, that in a way there's a parallel with the Duchess of Windsor, who is a similarly vain and vapid woman, totally without purpose, utterly self-absorbed into a, a social world and a very stylish social world but when she gets to the Bahamas I'm astonished to see that she does literally roll up her sleeves 
and she goes to work um, caring for children, and she does it quite well. Absolutely. I think that that is fascinating. Um, and she also, you know, takes on causes which are unfashionable. So she deals with sexually transmitted diseases. She she goes into the, in fact, the black townships in a way that the white colonial servants there wouldn't have done. So she's very brave. Uh, and for someone who actually comes from the, the, the south of America, who actually is quite racist, uh, it's extraordinary how she behaves. Uh, I mean, the sad thing is that he doesn't, in some ways, rise to the occasion. He goes and plays golf, driving between the the, the, the holes, uh, goes and watches strip shows and, and, and various things, gets drunk. It It is interesting. And, and what's sad is perhaps if that he had been given some role after the war, uh, a role that she could also have joined as she was as she had as governor's wife things might have been a bit different well i'm so glad to hear you say that because and again you know we're jumping around all over the place now between the mountbatten's and the windsors but it seems to me that one of the things that your book demonstrates whilst the focus is very much on whether or not um the duke was naive or whether he was a knowing traitor who wanted to be put on the throne of Britain after Hitler had won the war. But it does seem to me that there is some blame on the other side of this story in that the royal family could never find anything meaningful for them to do as a couple and at the same time exhibited to me extraordinary degrees of pettiness about not inviting them home for family weddings, for example. So when our current queen, the current queen, got married, you say 2,200 guests, they weren't invited. And you think to yourself, why couldn't anyone see their way through the awkwardness of the protocol and get over it? Yes, no, I think it is shocking. I think there were faults on both sides. Uh, and I mean, if you think, for example, he, he had this house, Fort Belvedere, which he had loved, which he was forced to give up when he abdicated. Uh, it was crown property. It was available. Uh, he was very keen to go back and live there. And they just took it off the market and, and made an arrangement elsewhere. So they were determined not to have him there. They were worried that he might, um, in a sense, um, he was rather more charismatic than his younger brother, Bertie, and that he might outshine him. But I think there was a vindictiveness and a pettiness and a revenge there. Uh, and in fact, they were told about this, the members of the royal family, and by others who said it just looked pathetic. And by the 1970s, there, there, were, there was a rapprochement. The Queen Mother, for example, arranged to go and see Wallace. She never saw her, but she sent flowers. The Queen and Prince Philip went to see them in, just before the Duke died. I think they were determined that they, that they would try and make amends. But it took 36 years. And in taking 36 years, where do you apportion the blame for that? Because I can't help feeling from reading your book that there are certain courtiers, particularly, I think, is it Tommy Lascelles, who play pivotal roles behind the scenes. Funnily enough, his name also comes up with the Gough Whitlam dismissal in the Jenny Hocking book. To me, he's absolutely pivotal in this stuff. Yes, absolutely. And I think I think that happens with a lot of royal behaviour. I think it's one of the things that's perhaps shaped the closure of the Mountbatten Diaries and Letters as well. That courtiers assume that the royal family may want things to happen in a particular way, or they take it upon themselves. It's part of their power. And 
I think also the royal family hide behind these people. Uh, nothing's ever said, and we see that even now with um, cash for honours and all sorts of things. Uh, I think it's uh, not credible that, that the royal family don't know what's going on, but they're just very good at keeping their, trying to keep their hands clean from any of this mucky business. But yes, the courtiers like Tommy Lassels are, are absolutely crucial in these matters. Uh, and it's extraordinary. We think the royal family have power, but actually it's the people who are supposedly working for them who seem to really exercise it. Well, I want to come back to that when, when we come to your sort of David and Goliath battle. But just before we get to that, um, I want to ask you, you paint a picture of Mountbatten. You leave your, your punch, your kind of killer chapter right until the end of the book about um, his behaviour as a raging homosexual and um, exploiting boys in a in a local boys home from Belfast at his castle in Ireland and it's an extraordinary picture that you paint um he and Edwina were perceived by members of the royal family to be quote persons of low morals as cited by Baroness Decease in her FBI file now if that's the case I'm curious why was Mountbatten allowed to be such a mentor figure to Prince Charles when he was growing up if the royal family thought that there was something a bit off-colour about him? Well, it's a good question. Um, I, I think that they, they play by slightly different rules. Uh, I mean, what I found extraordinary was that you would be thrown out of the Navy uh, if you were homosexual. In fact, you could go to prison. It was a criminal offence here till 1967. And yet he was pretty open about it. I mean, I found his chauffeur, who had been briefed to know where the male brothel was, because that's where he would want to go. And that was from senior naval officers. And in the plenty of occasions where he was very open about things and just things were covered up. Uh, and this is an extraordinary thing to do if, he, if his career was so important that he was so indiscreet about his private life. But I think they sort of felt they'd get away with it. I don't think that there was ever any threat to Charles because of his behaviour. I think the, the closeness of that relationship was because Prince Philip was busy. He didn't really have a strong rapport with his son. They were very different characters. Mountbatten had always wanted a son, which he didn't have. So this was the son he'd never had. Um, Charles really hadn't had a, a grandfather. So this was the honorary grandfather. And, of course, he was stationed quite close to Mountbatten's country home in Hampshire, so he was able to spend time there, take his girlfriends there. So I, I don't think there was ever any concern that, that he would be a bad influence or, or prey on him. I mean, I think Mountbatten had slightly, um, well, ideas like most of them, uh, i.e. basically sow your wild oats, and uh, as long as you don't scare the horses, you can do what you want, uh, and you can be married and have affairs. So I think he inculcated that sort of view in Charles, uh, and indeed he inculcated in other members of the royal family, including Prince Philip. But um, I think it took some of the pressure off the Queen and Prince Philip to, to have him doing things. For example, when no one was going to Charles' graduation at Dartmouth, Mountbatten went instead. Uh, so um, I, I don't think that there was ever a, any worry about that. I think the worry was that Mountbatten was a bit of a, uh, an attempt to fix things, uh, and he was always fixing people's marriages. He was trying to do things behind the scenes. Um, there's the story of the 1968 coup when he was flattered to be approached by a sort of cross-party group to, to, to become this figurehead in something which was you know, outside parliamentary um, democracy. 
but he was a very vain man and and i mean intelligent man but but so vain that i think sometimes he couldn't he couldn't actually see what was right and wrong so going back to the dynamic between edwina and mountbatten and this fascinating sort of open and complex and loving marriage when we get to india and she has this intense connection with nehru do you believe that that relationship was sexual because there seems in your book to be a lot of contradictions or different points of view about that. Yes, I think it. I, I think it was sexual, and I think this is why the 1947 diary has been held back from the release of the Mountbatten material. Uh, and I think there's quite good evidence, which I do put in the book, showing it was a sexual relationship, and it began before partition not afterwards, which is one of the lines. I think also that the, the family's line seems to, to change. First of all, it's platonic, then he's impotent. It could never have happened. I mean, they were both, both Nero and Edwina were, as you say, highly sexed. It was, it's inconceivable that they wouldn't have had this intense, what was a romantic relationship, without it having some sort of sexual uh, element to it as well. So I think there's pretty good evidence from people who saw them sharing rooms together, saw them physically embracing, that this wasn't quite the innocent relationship that everyone thinks. But I think what's so important is the perception, whether it was or wasn't, that here was one of the key players in Indian independence who was literally in bed with with the person who was meant to be overseeing it. And that didn't play well. And I think it's become increasingly clear that Mountbatten wasn't the dispassionate and partial governor-general that he should have been, and that he was, for whatever reason, uh, much more favourable to Nehru than he perhaps should have been, which has created, of course, huge resentment and indeed huge problems since. Kashmir is a classic example. So let's talk about the archive. My understanding is that the archive is at the University of Southampton and that this is what we would loosely call or, or is called the Broadlands Archive, and this is the body of Mountbatten's papers, and those are private, or are they official, or are they both? No, Mountbatten's official papers have been weeded. I mean, his papers have been weeded uh, numerous times, and there's always this problem with what we call strayed archives, where people take papers home, uh, which they shouldn't do, Churchill's classic example, and they have to be recovered. And that's particularly true, of course, because he was a chief of defence staff. So none of that material, I think, ever appeared at, at Broadlands. Um, so these are everything from the school, his school reports to the laundry lists uh, through to correspondence with people. That has all been available at Southampton University. It was sent from the Broadlands, where it was kept at the house in the 1980s, uh, and that has been available to researchers. It was on loan for, for many years. But what um, uh, the fight is about is the private diaries, the diaries that each of them kept and also their own correspondence. Uh, and this was lodged at Southampton. In fact, it was bought as part of the whole package eventually in 2011 for four and a half million pounds. Um, and it was bought partly from grants from, for example, local councils, from charities, uh, but also from something called the acceptance and loo scheme, which is basically a tax dodge that you don't have to pay your tax if you give stuff. But of course, it has to be open to the public. Uh, and all the fundraising was done on the basis that this was an important collection, uh, including the diaries and letters, it should be available to uh, researchers. And what happened is when they got to, to Southampton, the archivist there used his privileged position to close them 
and then to come to an arrangement with the Cabinet Office, who had an involvement because of the acceptance and loose scheme, to edit the material himself. Uh, and that was what I was fighting against, to, to, to get this material released. Now, I spent the last six years, my book came out several years ago, so too late for me, though still an important source for, for others, uh, writing about interwar history, royal history, uh, and some of the characters there. Um, and I'm hoping we've got a final hearing in November that they will, though they don't normally award costs, that because of the behaviour of Southampton and the Cabinet Office, where they repeatedly changed their position, were, complete, uh, were obstructive, uh, um, in fact were in contempt of court on several occasions, um, that I will be able to get some of this money that I've spent on it back. Am I right in thinking that you have in fact appealed or that you are crowdfunding to fund this final court case in November at the moment? Yes. I mean, what happened was I, I, I paid for it myself. I mean, all my savings went into this. Uh, and it was one of those things where you, you've got to keep going. It's like a one-way street. If you stop, you lose. And we, we knew we were winning. It was just a matter of time. But, of course, they played it as long as they could. They kept kicking the, the, the can down the street. Uh, and I got to a point in the summer where uh, I just run out of money. So I had to crowdfund the last 50000 to to take us to the hearing, which hopefully we'll, we'll cover it. And then hopefully I'll get the cost back and hopefully we can pay people back. Now, Jenny Hocking did the very same thing here regarding her access to the dismissal papers. But she thought that she might have to, I think, mortgage her house. She was a woman on her own. Do you have a family? Do you have a wife? I mean, did you have to ask your family, is it OK if I do this? Well, that's another good question. I, I did. I mean, my wife clearly was um, aware, children were aware of it, but I think they, they realised, nor did I, to be honest, how much had been spent. Uh, I think when we realised, I mean, we were all slightly sort of shocked by it. But no, she's been very good. And I think she's had faith in the principle, but also in the fact that hopefully, morally, if not legally, they're going to have to pay it back. Um, and there's been a media and parliamentary campaign for that to happen. So hopefully I've lost a bit, but not as much as, 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 as my life savings. My children are actually been very good about it because in some ways it's, it's money that might well have gone to them. But I think also they believe in, in the principle. My son actually is very active in something called free speech champions. And I felt there were important principles about access to archives, about the abuse of, of government power, uh, about the way the royal family interferes and censors our history. And it just seemed to be completely wrong. And also it was an important source for other historians. I think the thing I did also find shocking was that more historians uh, weren't prepared to raise their head above the parapet. In fact, only one historian, Robert Lacey, got behind me and, and in fact contributed to, to the crowdfunding. Uh, and another man, Clive Irving, helped with, with some publicity. But uh, well-known historians here who should have, in a sense, been in support of this campaign kept very, very quiet and... I had people saying to me, I know the royal f I have friends in the royal family, I don't want to get involved, I'm hoping for a peerage. I mean, people, it, it, it sort of brought home the corruption that there is. Historians should be trying to tell the truth about the past, not, not trying to enhance their own careers. I'm glad to hear that Robert Lacey stepped up because, of course, he is one of those royal biographers, having written a book recently about... Um... Well, he's done William and Harry most recently. That's his right. classic yes. book, His Majesty. Yes. No, he was being brilliant um, you know, and very supportive. Uh, and, you know, he's married to... Uh, his wife was, I think, a bridesmaid to Queen Elizabeth. So, I mean, he's part of that whole scene himself. But I think he, he realised that this was wrong.
Is the archivist acting alone in making these decisions or under pressure from the royal family or from the cabinet? Or where is pressure coming from if there is pressure? It's clear from the correspondence we've now got through the various hearings that the royal family have, or members of the royal family and their officials have been at meetings, have been copied into correspondence, that some of the diaries and letters have now under court instructions, been released. We, we, we originally won a decision from the Information Commissioner they should be released, and that's what they appealed against. But since then, the court has ruled that material should be released. It wasn't released until there was again an outcry from Parliament and the media. Uh, but one of the reasons they gave for delay was that they were having to seek permission from Prince Philip. Now, Prince Philip does pop up in the diaries, but it's, you know, he's gone to a birthday party age seven. I mean, these, this is material from 1922, so it's very difficult to see what could be sensitive. And in fact, having read quite a lot of the stuff that's now been released, it's all completely innocuous. This fight has not been about some important principle or protecting anything. It's about them drawing a line in the sand and making an example of someone who's making trouble. But do you think, in terms of sensitivities, I mean, you mentioned, you know, Prince Philip's death, do you think that all of this will change when the current Queen dies? No, I don't think there'll be any change, because I think Prince Charles is cut from the same cloth. Uh, And I think that the courtiers are still... We see it with freedom of information just generally, that in fact we've gone backwards in terms of access and transparency. So, no, I'm afraid I don't have great hopes it's going to be any easier... There's still this, what I call the history racket of tame archivists who are prepared to have their material censored and um, the cabinet office working at the behest of the royal family to suppress material. And I, I, I just don't think that we have a true picture of our past because we haven't got all the information to, to construct that picture. So when we come to the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, did you encounter the same kinds of problems when it came to archives? Yes, for example, I know the Duke of Windsor was involved in currency speculation. In fact, his secretary, a man called John Waterlove, was caught uh, and threatened to go to the papers. Now, this was all reported and, and sorted by a man called Walter Monckton. Uh, the papers were all held by the Monckton family. Uh, when I inquired from them, they said, oh, well, I'm afraid we've given them to the Royal Archives now. So I asked for all the Walter Monckton material in the Royal Archives. Uh, I have to say this wasn't in the material I was shown, which was a rather thin, thin file. So once it's, it's a bit like Hotel California, the, what goes into the Royal Archives doesn't come out. The British Archives and the Archives of the Bahamas for the period that he was governor, are um, uh, the files are identical. The only difference is in Britain, the files are, are becoming heavily weeded, but there is material left in the Bahamas in the files there, which have not been weeded, whether that's um, an oversight or whether the Bahamans have said no. So there's wonderful stuff there. So, for example, in the Harry Oakes murder, where the Duke basically colluded in covering up a murder of someone that he was involved with financially, um, we know that the the chief of police was, was, was sent at the Duke's instructions to another post elsewhere not to give evidence, and he gave it to two crooked FBI agents to deal with. Now, we wouldn't know that if if that material hadn't been in the Bahamas archives, because it's not certainly in the British ones. I love the Bahamian section of your book, because there's a delicious kind of looseness to it all. (laughs) Oh, yes, it is. No, exactly. They're all, well, exactly. They're all sleeping with each other and defrauding each other. 
talk to me a little bit about the significance of the discovery of the so-called Marburg papers. What was in them and what happened to them? Well, what happened was that during the war, the Duke was approached by uh, Nazi agents to act as an effect as a British petain. Uh, and I think the Churchill people knew this. They had spies everywhere in his entourage. They had him bugged. I mean, he was bugged from the, by MI5 from 1936. The FBI were also bugging him. So, And, of course, we had the ultra-decrypts. So the officials knew what was going on. That was why he was sent off to the Bahamas. But, of course, no one else knew. And what happened was in May 1945, in the chaos at the end of the war, the German Foreign Office minister, uh, files were due to be destroyed, particularly uh, a file on this correspondence and dealings with Windsor, sometimes known as Marburg Files because of the place it was found, sometimes known as the Windsor File. Now, that should have been destroyed, but a man decided that, that, that he would basically use this as his bargaining counter, to, for, um, and he came across with it. It wasn't destroyed. Part of the book is about the attempts by the British, working with people like Eisenhower, to ensure this material was never made public. Uh, and the heroes of the story are the American historians who put this material together for the Nuremberg trials and then wanted to publish it uh, as part of a series of captured German documents. And though not all the material was published and it was delayed until the publication until 1957, this material came out and it showed how actively the Duke had intrigued with the Germans. Uh, and we know that he was communicating in code with the Germans. Indeed, even when he left he sent back a coded telegram to say that he was waiting in the wings ready if he was if he was required. Uh, and that's been confirmed both by the diary of an MI5 officer, Guy Little, and by our good friend, Tommy Lassels. Tommy Lassels, and another person who crops up again in your narrative, who obviously was in your Guy Burgess story, is Anthony Blunt. Yes, exactly. And I mean, there's always been this great mystery about how why Anthony Blunt was given immunity from prosecution. And certainly when he was interviewed uh, in the beginning of the 1960s, Peter Wright, who interviewed him, was told that, he, that he, if he mentions a mission he had at the end of the war, that's not important and just to pass over it. Uh, and so there's always been speculation about this mission. And I think it's become increasingly clear that his visit to Kronberg in August 1945 was to recover incriminating, what they thought might be incriminating material that was lodged there. Kronberg was the home of the Hess family, in fact, relations of Mountbatten. But Prince Philip of Hess had been uh, a Nazi. He'd been one of the intermediaries uh, with the Duke of Windsor. They were very close. In fact, there was a suggestion they may have even had an affair. So the big question was, if Blunt went to recover this material, what was in it? And no one has ever been able to pinpoint uh, that there were Hess Windsor correspondence there until in Keble College, Oxford, I found the diary of a British Army officer who, in fact, had been posted there and by chance one day, literally in August 1945, had wandered round and found these letters in a drawer. Um, he didn't know about the mission, but he'd certainly it's evidence that the material was there. And, of course, we've never now seen those letters. I mean, the material that was in Kronberg has gone on display but it's clear that Blunt had some role uh, in recovering incriminating material. So I suspect there's a lot more material that we just don't know about. All I've been able to do is to find the fragments that haven't been destroyed. Well, when you say there, just in a sort of off-handed aside, I found a diary. Hang on a minute. How did you find that diary that led you to that particular officer? 
uh, because I just uh, basically go through every archive I can ever find, look through the inventory, see who's there, see if there might be papers that are relevant, even even if it's correspondence about something. And and I knew um, just from my research that this man had been there at the time, and therefore I went to look at his diary, and I looked around the particular time. But of course you've always got to look in adjacent files. I mean, I probably use about 5% of the stuff that I actually collect, uh, partly because it doesn't fit the narrative, and partly sometimes it, it, it's just it, I can't make the connections. So I had, for example, plenty more evidence about Mountbatten than his uh, homosexuality, but sometimes I just couldn't verify it. It was at second and third hand. Um, and indeed I had evidence about Blunt's trip, from people he'd spoken to about it. But again, it was at second and third hand, and that really wasn't quite enough. So, Andrew, was there a a particularly memorable sort of aha or gotcha moment in your research on Traitor King where you thought, that's it? You know, this, this is the gold that every biographer is looking for. What was fascinating is going through the archives to find all sorts of bits that fitted into the puzzle, more evidence, particularly, for example, from FBI files uh, and State Department files, and actually a lot in, in Roosevelt's um, archives, of just what the Duke had particularly been up to during the war and his connections. I think that the wonderful moment for me was actually to find material in two secondary sources, uh, which had been around for a while. And that was the Tommy Lassell's diary and the Guy Little diary, both confirming that this killer telegram in, in August 1940 was true. I think one of the lines that had been peddled was that this telegram, when he contacted his the agent he was dealing with, Nazi agent in Lisbon, was to do with um, luggage being forwarded. But the, the German agent would not have then passed that on to Berlin if it was as innocent as that. But the great thing was to have confirmation from two different sources saying, absolutely, he's been a traitor and this is, you know, this is the code and it's, it's actually true. We are talking here about the Duke of Windsor. I should just remind the listener that this is the Duke of Windsor agreeing to use coded language to signal to the Germans that he is on board to take over and resume the throne when they assume power and control in Britain, having won the war. Was there a particular word? Was there one word in that code that meant I am ready or was it a phrase? What was it? Well, we we don't know the telegram and that's one of the problems. We know that uh, a telegram was sent to Spirito Santo, the German agent in Lisbon, and he then uh, wrote to Berlin and say, yes, he's prepared to be involved. And, you know, we've heard from, from heard from him from the Bahamas. So that's, again, that's one of the problems. But uh, the fact that they confirmed that that telegram is missing. I mean, it's odd. Why is that telegram missing when we have all the others? Because, of course, they were intercepting. One of the great things is we had postal censorship. And so a lot of the material was actually being collated. And though the Duke wasn't censored, supposedly, Wallace was. And other people in their entourage were also censored. So one was able to see... Uh, letters where people said, I've just had dinner with the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, they they seem to be supporters of Hitler and they wanted to make a sue for peace and stuff. So we had it again second hand, but enough of the same of people saying the same thing to be pretty persuasive. So we don't have his actual words saying I'm prepared to come back, but we do have someone else who's pretty trustworthy saying yes he's prepared to come back. 
Now, another thing that's missing is any record of a conversation that he's purported to have had with Hitler in 1937. There is nothing about that. So this is a duke who's under constant surveillance. There are spies orbiting him and Wallace nonstop. But we don't know anything about that conversation. But we do know that it took place at Berchtesgaden. Yes, absolutely. They had tea there in October 1937. Uh, I think it's odd because we have so much material from the Marburg files, from the captured German documents. It would have been in this collection. uh, And for whatever reason, I'm sure it survived the war. uh, It's not been published. uh, But we have several unpublished telegrams that have been discovered in other papers. Um, One of the American historians left his papers to the Hoover Institute and his material there. So stuff has come. But in fact, I did talk originally with the Blunt Book to a man called Donald Cameron Watt, who was one of the people who actually went through the material when it was brought to Britain in 1945 as a young academic. Uh, And he was the person who raised the the, the alarm that there were missing bits that they expected to see and and it wasn't there. So whether it's been destroyed or or whether it's uh, lurking in the Royal Archives or elsewhere, who knows? But there there are gaps but that's, and sometimes it's often the gaps which are more interesting than what you find. Absolutely. I want to ask you, though, about the Duke's motives, because it seems to me that they're quite complex. I mean, he was obviously fixated on avoiding paying tax, avoiding another war, which was an entirely noble kind of aspiration after the devastation of World War One. He was obviously obsessed with anti-communism. At the same time, he wanted Wallace to have the title that he felt she had been denied. So there's quite a sort of complicated cocktail of personal and broader motives that you can ascribe to him. Do you think all of them are bad, equally bad? Uh, I think they're all they're all absolutely uh, crucial. Um, I think he felt that he'd let Wallace down. He was cheated. This is another pettiness that, you know, all his sisters-in-law were her royal highnesses. There's no reason why uh, Wallace shouldn't have been. If they wanted a morganatic marriage, um, that deal was on the table, in effect, before uh, he abandoned the throne. So, I mean, he understandably felt um, hurt uh, and let down by his family. I think he felt that he hadn't been able to provide for Wallace in the way he'd hoped, which is why he shouted with jewels. She was an ambitious woman in her own right, and I think he, he could see that in some ways she sort of pushed him along a lot, a lot of the way. I mean, there are certain parallels with Meghan Markle and, and Harry now. And I think also having... In a sense, sometimes when you give up something, you realise actually you, you really did quite want it. And I think he, he, he realised that, that he had a position to play. Of course, people flattered him. There were lots of people came forward saying, you, you can bring world peace. And so he felt there was a role for him, having, in a sense, been brought up to a role which he abandoned. He then realised that there was something he could do. And instead of channeling his energies elsewhere uh, in a slightly more productive way, uh, it was used like this, and I think this is, a, again, a fault of the royal family for not trying to control him better. But it was a mixture of the personal and the political. And, I mean, as you say, he was absolutely right. Many people, including uh, Bertie, his younger brother, believed up to literally the autumn of 1939 that some sort of deal could be done with Germany and let them fight it out with the Russians and save the British Empire. 
I suppose one of the shocking things I discovered was that even as late as the October 1941, the British were entertaining peace uh, overtures from the Germans through the Vatican, through Sweden and Switzerland. Uh, though they were perhaps letting things run just to see what might happen, they were certainly taking them seriously. And cabinet ministers like Halifax, the ambassador in Washington, Lothian, were all involved in this, and they were not operating on their own. So there was some justification for the, what his beliefs were. But then, I mean, he was even trying to keep America out of the war, and that was again one of the concerns that he shouldn't be allowed to go to America and and and, uh, and get involved with the isolationists. But he did exhibit some remorse later on, didn't he? Or do you think he was just trying to cover his tracks in terms of his legacy? I, I, I don't think he was remorseful at all. I think he he was coached to to express remorse and say he was naive as a way of covering up things. I mean. We have this terrible thing in Britain that if we apologise, it's all OK then. Uh, and that's what he was doing. But it's very clear, his, 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 he remained friendly with all sorts of people like Oswald Mosley, a uh, very anti-Semitic um, right-wing American businessman. And I tell stories in the book of him, uh, well, show examples of anti-Semitism, but even saying what a good chap Hitler was privately to people. So I don't think his views changed at all. Andrew, in the broader picture of where the world has moved on to now, why you think that this still matters? Well, I think the job of the historian is to tell the truth about what happened in the past. And this is an episode which we haven't had the full picture. I mean, history would have been very different if, if he had been brought back, if, if the Germans had invaded Britain and there had been some sort of peace deal. He would probably have been king and history would have been very different I think that's pretty important. And I think to discover that a former monarch has, has been, uh, in a sense, a traitor is is a big story. It does matter. Uh, of course, it didn't happen in the end, but it could have happened. And I think we, we always learn from the past in some ways, hopefully, to, to try and uh, fix things in the future. We have, in a sense, a playbook at the moment for Harry and, and Meghan, which is not dissimilar from the Windsors, and yet all the same... Uh, mistakes are being made. Meghan and Harry, different degree of responsibility that has been stepped away from. So you can't really quite compare it at that sort of level. But I was going to ask you more about have they learnt nothing in terms of scandal and sweeping things under the carpet and accountability with regard to Prince Andrew? No, absolutely not. Uh, and Prince Charles is a huge scandal at the moment about cash for honours here and Charles's charities. So, you know, you take your pick. I mean, you've got two of the Queen's sons and then her grandson involved in activity, which she would never have got involved in. I mean, she's wily enough never to put a foot wrong like that. And you wonder, they've been brought up to, to do this. This is, this is not some innocent who's been caught out. And we have plenty of stories about cash for access with other members of the royal family, other slightly more minor figures. So no, they don't. I, I think the, the problem is that they don't have a strong enough sense of the history, and I think they get greedy, and they think they're not going to get caught. But the way that Andrew's played his, his defence is, is crazy. I mean, when you're in a hole, stop digging, and he just can't avoid digging. And even, even if he gets off, as I think he probably will, it, it, it will damage not just him, but the monarchy. And I, I have real concerns now as a monarchist whether the monarchy will survive the next 50 years. 
Okay, so now you've preempted me again. You've answered my next question because Jenny Hocking in her David and Goliath struggle to get hold of the dismissal papers and find out how much the Queen was involved in the dismissal of Gough Whitlam wrote her book and campaigned overtly as a Republican. You are a monarchist and yet clearly your books must be causing considerable pain and consternation to members of the royal family. Do you do you know whether they've read your books and have expressed private horror? Well they've been asked, the Buckingham Palace have been asked for comment but they've not commented. Um, my first book was given as a Christmas present by members of the royal family but I'm not sure that's, that's happening now. Um, but who knows? Um, I mean, I have, for example, gone to dinners where members of my Batten family have been there. I've been assuming they were going to throw bread rolls at me and actually saying, this is great stuff. We enjoyed it. Uh, uh, so you never quite know how they're going to respond. So unless someone chops off your head in the meantime, what's next for you? Well, I'm a glutton for punishment. I'm thinking about Prince Philip. <laughs> Well, you better make the most of the fact that the crown is still running so that you can secure the the big, juicy, fat advance that you're going to need for all the travel involved. Good luck, Andrew Lowney. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. I'll keep an eye on how Andrew Lowney's case regarding the Mountbatten archives goes and give you an update in a future episode. I love the fact that he's determined to uncover the unpalatable truths about previous members of the royal family as a committed monarchist. And I also like the irony that it's a series like The Crown that has given him the impetus and the robust advances to be able to finance long, arduous research. I wonder how difficult it will be to tell the truth about Prince Philip in the Queen's lifetime and whether he might be tempted to wait. Live Sentences is produced by David Roach for Two Heads Media and by Jennifer Macy. We live and work on Darawal country and pay our respects to their elders past and present. Music is composed and performed by Amanda Brown from her album Slow Chocolate, produced and licensed by Lily Pilly IP. Thank you for listening to Live Sentences. Mm-hmm.